0: Before I read Genesis 32, let me just spend a few minutes kind of reminding us of some things. There, was a, several, there were several good conversations I had with people this last week, kind of talking about some things here in Genesis. And there are several different questions, and the questions were kind of the same question as a question I have often asked as I've heard preachers preach messages from the Old Testament. And essentially the question is this. Is, is the main point of your sermon always the main point of the text? Is the emphasis of the sermon always the same as what the, the text, the main emphasis of the text? And the answer is hopefully, right? Hopefully, that's certainly what we are trying to do, and sometimes perhaps more successfully than others. And, and here's kind of how I think about the process, so I think it's just helpful to maybe think through this together as a church as we think about what's taking place during this time every sunday together what are we doing as we come to god's word in my study what i'm trying to do and communicate this in a a sermon is first of all try to understand what is the original message to the original audience so what is moses trying to say to the people of israel what is Paul trying to say to the Corinthians, that's the first kind of thing I'm trying to consider and the thing I want us to understand on a Sunday morning as we deal with the text. And then the second question is, okay, what are the theological truths in that text? So not only is, what is Paul saying to the Corinthians or Moses saying to the Israelites, what is the message to all of God's people throughout History, the theological truth that doesn't change from that message. What's, what's that? And then the third part of a study or a message is what is the application of that theological truth to this audience, to the 21st century audience who is meeting at Five Points Washington here, Bethany Community Church? What's, what's the message to us? That's, that's the task. What's the message to the original audience? We want to understand the original message in the text, what are the theological truths, and then how do we apply that in our lives? And sometimes that process is a little crisper than at other times. So, for example, Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, "...if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new." That's what Paul is telling the Corinthians. You're in Christ, you're a new creation. Theological truth, a person who is in Christ is new and needs to live like it. Then the application to this audience, hey, if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. You you see, that's pretty easy. Now, it gets a little bit more difficult when we come to the the Old Testament. And especially in narrative passages, there are some real challenges here. So, you come to the Old Testament and, and... Moses says something to the Israelites, and this is to the Israelites living in the old covenant, and now you come to the the New Testament, you see that the New Testament church really sometimes struggled to understand how to apply the message to the Israelites in the old covenant. The, The church struggled to understand, okay, how do we how do we apply that in the church? How do we apply this to Gentiles who, under, who are under the new covenant? How, what are the theological truths? There are some challenges there, and there's going to be some challenges for our church in the coming weeks and months as we kind of get more into the law. And hopefully there is uh, just great grace as we think through uh, how to talk about those things and think about these things. But when we come to a passage like Genesis 32, <clears throat> it can be especially hard because you're dealing with a story. It's not just a, you know, it's not just God saying, hey, do this or don't do this. It's a story. It's a story that's part of a larger story in this section of scripture we call the Pentateuch. It's part of the Abrahamic covenant. There are just a lot of layers to this story. And it's a kind of an enigmatic, a mysterious story. There's some strange things in it. The, uh, the The things in here are not necessarily easier easy to understand, so there are some challenges as we look at this story this morning we 'll talk more about that as we after we read the text here so if you would uh, stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together, and again as we approach scripture our Our desire is to understand what is God saying to the original audience, and then how do we apply that in our lives today? And we'll talk through how we do that in this text, and hopefully God will encourage us as we do that. Genesis 32. Jacob is on his way back home. He is going to encounter his brother Esau. He's a little nervous about that meeting because last time uh, things did not go well. He saw Esau, they, they threatened to kill him, or Esau wanted to kill him. So obviously a little bit of tension in that relationship. Jacob's struggling with that. And this is uh, before he's going to meet his brother. He's, he's nervous about that. Then we come to verse 22. <clears throat> the same night... He, that's Jacob, arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, "'Let me go, for the day is broken.' For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. You may be seated. May God encourage, strengthen us through his word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Jacob, and we recognize uh, this morning that our ability to, to know you is, is limited by, by so many things in and of ourselves, and so we, we thank you for your grace in revealing yourself to us. This morning, I, I lift up those who are struggling to cling to you. We think of those who may be going through difficult circumstances with their family or with the situation, with with their health. We're just going through an emotionally dark season, feel a lack of, of hope. Give them hope in your word this morning. Give them hope through your word in you this morning. Help them to come and see the beauty of Jesus and to cling to him above all other things. Help us to love one another with your love, by your grace, through faith. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Let's think about what's happening here in verses 22 through 32 of Genesis 32. Remember, there's an audience here. There's Jacob, and he hears this angel, the Lord God himself, speak to him, and he says some things. There's an audience in the story, but there's also the audience that's hundreds of years after the events in the story, and that's the main audience. It's Moses' audience, the Israelites, and Moses is speaking these things or writing these these things down, reading these things to the people of Israel or having people read these things to the people of Israel at a certain time. it's, It's the time that they are preparing to go into the promised land. And so the original audience of this story are people who are preparing to enter into the promised land to live in obedience by faith in God. In other words, what I want us to understand is it's not like you just open up your Bible to Genesis 32, 22, and all of a sudden, uh, there's a story of a guy wrestling. I mean, that's, that's not what's happening here. God didn't just say to, to Moses, you know what this story needs? You know what this, story... this story needs more action, Moses. Uh, a midnight wrestler, okay? A, a mysterious figure. Let's do that. That's, that's not what's happening here. Again, the story that we're reading here takes place in a larger story. There's the story of Jacob, but the larger story that we're dealing with right now is the story of God's covenant with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. And God promised Abraham land, the the promised land. That's why it's called the promised land. That's, That's what God told Abraham he would have. And he promised him descendants, and he promised Abraham that his descendants would be a blessing, a blessing to the nations. Those who blessed him would be blessed, and, and he would be a blessing to the nations. That's the Abrahamic covenant. And so the story of Isaac takes place within this larger story of the Abrahamic covenant. And the story of Jacob takes place in the context of this larger story of the Abrahamic covenant. And what have we seen about Jacob's life? Because this story of this midnight wrestler is not the only story of Jacob we have, right? It's not like this is all we know about Jacob. And sometimes when we come to this story or stories like it, we can kind of get um, kind of get confused and not understand this is this is a larger story. What's happening in the larger story of Jacob's life? Jacob, from the first moment we encounter him, when we first hear about him in the womb, he's a person. Who, Who's characterized by conflict. He's wrestling in the womb. He comes into the world grabbing the brother, grabbing the heel of his brother. His whole life is the story is set in context of the Abrahamic covenant, and his whole life is consumed with trying to obtain the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. And yet, as we encounter Jacob trying to encounter trying to receive the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, what do we see? We see that his life is marked by pursuing the covenant in ways that God would not have him pursue the covenant. He doesn't understand the spiritual nature of the covenant. As, as he and Isaac, for example, talk about the Abrahamic covenant, they talk about the blessings of, of ruling the nations. They don't understand the idea of, or don't articulate well, the idea of blessing the nations. They don't understand the spiritual components of the covenant, or at least they don't discuss them in the narrative. It's much more about the physical aspects of the blessing. And then not only does Jacob not understand the spiritual nature of this covenant that he's trying to obtain, he also doesn't rightly understand how to obtain the covenant. Moses, as he tells the story of Jacob's life, is trying to communicate to the people, look, the way that you receive the blessings of the covenant is is by God's grace through faith and you live in obedience to God by faith and by loving him. And Jacob's life has not been characterized by love of God and pursuing God with love. Jacob's life has been marked by deception, by deceit, by conniving, trying to to obtain the blessings of the covenant in all sorts of inappropriate ways. That's the story of Jacob's life. And so what's happening in this story why does moses of all the events of jacob's life that he could have included why does moses tell us this story why does god want moses to tell the people of israel this story and it's it's there's some mysterious parts of it but here's here's the general truth that i think god is trying to convey here at, at its heart this passage is a real event from Jacob's life, and yet at the same time, it's symbolic of his entire life, right? His life is one who strives, who wrestles. And I think what happens in this event is that God teaches Jacob something very profound. You cannot obtain the blessings of the covenant simply by being, by being born into the covenant. You cannot obtain the blessings of the covenant simply by birth, and you also cannot obtain the blessings of the covenant through striving in your own effort. What I think God is, is teaching Jacob, what Moses is communicating to his audience, is, is this central idea that the only way to receive the blessings of the covenant is by clinging to God by his grace through faith. Let me say that again. The only way to receive the blessings of the covenant is by clinging to God by his grace through faith. That's what I think is trying to be communicated in this story. And what we see about faith here is that faith is not some just abstract intellectual assent you have to some truths about God. But faith is a trust in God that manifests itself in profound ways and profound action. That's what I think is taking place here. And Moses is communicating these things about Jacob and this story about Jacob so that the people of Israel, as they go into this land that God has promised them, will understand, look, the blessings of the covenant are not yours simply by being born into them. Just as Jacob didn't get the blessings of the covenant simply by being born a son of Isaac, that's also not how you receive the blessings of the covenant. The blessings of the covenant cannot be received, the true blessings of the covenant cannot be received simply by striving, by trying to obtain them, by works. The blessings of the covenant are only yours. By God's grace, he bestows them upon you by his grace, and you receive them through faith. And faith manifests itself through clinging to God. The fruit of faith is seen and continued obedience. People of Israel, I think Moses is saying, look to Jacob. And just as Jacob, by his faith, continued to cling to God in the midst of a difficult situation, so you are called, as you go into the promised land here, to continue to cling to God by faith. Now, this message to the original audience is also a message that, that we need, right? I would be shocked... If there were not some of us in this room who were struggling with our faith, with a crisis of faith, a crisis of faith, or whatever you want to call it, can be, can be brought on by many things, right? And many people have, have had these, and many, I think, just kind of struggle in silence. There's things that they're doubting about God and about their relationship with God, and about the truths of his word, and they don't tell anyone. Maybe you're married and you're struggling with, with your faith and you haven't even told your spouse what you're thinking and what you're struggling with. And I, I don't think that's uncommon. Maybe you're having a, a crisis of faith. You're struggling with your faith and it's been brought on by an experience. There's been something that's happened in your life and as you, you think about this experience, this health issue or this this thing going on in a relationship, it's caused you to kind of doubt. Should I continue to follow the Lord? This is the The path of faith. This is, I believe in God and then God calls me to live this way. And as I continue to believe in God, I continue to live this way. Do I want to continue to believe in God... And have faith in him and continue to live this way or do I want to live a different way based upon this experience I've had? Or maybe you've had a conversation with someone and this conversation with someone really kind of shook you to your core as they questioned your faith and they talked about, well, if you believe in God, what about this and what about that? And and boy, I don't know, I'm kind of struggling with this and you're having this internal crisis of faith. Or maybe there's, there's something you read. and oh, I don't know how what I read here meshes with, with what God's word says, and I'm kind of struggling here. Or, or maybe, maybe there's just some way that you want to live your life. You say, man, I just want to live my life this way. And I know that this way conflicts with what God's word says I'm supposed to do. And I know that if I continue to believe in God, I'm going to need to live this way. But I kind of want to live this way. I want to live this, this life of materialism, or maybe it's a life of immorality. I know what God's word says about morality and how I'm supposed to live. That does not sound very appealing to me. I want to live this way instead. And I know that I cannot continue to have a life of faith and live this way. I, I, think, I think I'm going to choose to you, live this way or I'm struggling with that. I don't know what to do it's a scary thing it's a reality God's word warns against right Hebrews 3.12 take care brothers lest there be in you any lest there be in any of you an, un, an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God John in 1 John 2.19 would, would talk about this reality in the church he'd say look there's people they were in our, in our fellowship but what happened they, they went out from us they were not of us For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And so it's a scary thing, a reality, but some, as they encounter the truths of Scripture, kind of assent to them, and then come to a point where they fall away. And what what is the message here? The only way to receive the blessings of the covenant, God's covenant with his people, is by clinging to God. By clinging to God by his grace through faith. If you're struggling this morning, that's what I want to encourage you with. Brother, sister, continue to cling to God as he continues to grant you grace. and Cling to him through faith, believing and trusting in him. Let's, let's talk about a couple of things here from this, from this passage. Here, here's the first thing I want us to talk about. I want us to talk about how to recognize a test of faith. Let's talk about recognizing a test of faith. Sometimes we can find ourselves in a difficult situation, and as we find ourselves in a difficult situation, we can fail to think theologically about it. We can think, well, I'm just kind of in one of those, those bad spots, and we don't recognize, oh, theologically, what's happening here? My faith is being tested. This is a, a moment in which I need to decide whether or not I'm going to continue to trust in God. Sometimes, in, in fact, kind of the interesting thing to me is even the reality of having our faith challenged confirms the validity of what God's word says about faith. God says this is going to take place. Now, look at here, Genesis 32, and uh, we're in verse 22. Kind of go back to the beginning and and remember what's happening in Jacob's life. Jacob is one who, throughout his life, has struggled with believing God and, and trusting him. Even in Genesis 28, whenever God appears to him, what does Jacob say in response he says in verse 20 of Genesis 28, in response to God's promises, he says, if, if God will be with me, if God will be with me, will keep me in this way that I should go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And then he continues that, that vow. And so Jacob is one who has, has struggled to, to believe God and his promises You come to Genesis 32, and he's preparing to to go back to his home. He recognizes the need to deal with Esau, and he begins to send messengers in verse 3 to Esau, his brother. And uh, he says, look, say to Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I've been with Uncle Laban, got a lot of stuff, and now I want to find favor in your sight. And verse 6 says, the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him, okay? That doesn't sound good. Whenever the last thing at the last family reunion that happened is your brother said, I want to kill you. As soon as dad dies, I'm going to kill you. Whenever that's your last recollection of how things went with your brother, and then now you hear that your brother is coming with 400 men, it, it's not a good thing. That sounds bad. And Jacob is a little freaked out. and says, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divides, you know, how does Jacob respond? He responds as he normally does by how am I going to handle this? What plan can I have? And he so divides the, the possessions and his family into two camps. He thinks, okay, if, if Jacob or if Esau goes after one, then maybe the other will be able to flee and escape. And then look at verse 9. And this, this prayer is very profound. Look what he prays in verse 9. First of all, he addresses God in a very theologically correct way. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord. That's him addressing him, Yahweh. You said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do good to you. And so he's, or I may do you good. He's reminding God of of God's promises. This is what I said. This, This is what you said. And then he acknowledges his unworthiness. Verse 10, I, I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and of the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan. Now I've become two camps. Then verse 11, there's this request. Keep me safe, God. Deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. I'm afraid. I fear him. And then verse 12, he reminds God. But here's what you said, God. You said... I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Look, God, this is your deal. This is who I am. I don't deserve this, but I'm, I'm requesting something of you. And I'm, my request is based on what you've said, your word. And then Jacob sends Esau lots of gifts, gathers up all these gifts and begins to send them to his brother. One after the other. They go on ahead. And then verse twenty is interesting. It says Say this to him say, Your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought I may appease him, and that that word appease is the same word we get the word propitiation from, that I may turn his face, that I may cover his face, that I may turn away his wrath with the present that goes ahead of me and afterwards I shall see his face perhaps he will accept me maybe I'll I'll turn away his wrath with these gifts the present passed on ahead of him and he himself stayed that night in the camp and then verse 22 the same night he arose he takes his wives his servants his children they cross the ford he takes them he sends them across the stream and it's like Moses is trying to get the idea here is He's all by himself. Everything's on the other side of the Jabbok. The Jabbok is this river that comes out of the Jordan, goes from east to west, and he's on one side, and everything else that he has is on the other side. Verse 24, and Jacob was left alone. He is all by himself, and it is at night. There's this picture of solitude that is, you you, you can feel what Jacob is going through here, right? And then it's at that moment that a man wrestled with him. And we know later that man is going to be God himself. It's a Christophany here, an appearance of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. What do we learn here about how to recognize wrestling with God? In that moment when we find ourselves encountering a, a difficult situation, how do we recognize, hey, this, this is a test of faith. How do we think rightly, theologically about what's taking place? I think there's some important things to, to recognize. One is this. Uh, one, we need to understand this. A test of faith often occurs when God's word and our experience seem at odds with one another. A test of faith often occurs when our experience and God's word seem at odds with one another. It's, it's this test. It's, okay, what am I going to believe? Jacob, as he prays to God, prays a very good prayer. He recognizes his unworthiness, but even more importantly, he recognizes who God is. And as he recognizes who God is, he says, look, God, this is what you said. You said, this is your plan for me. You promised to do good for me. You, you said the promises of the Abrahamic covenant are mine. You said you'd bring me back to my father's house in safety, but I, I don't know about this. I, I don't know. There are 400 men accompanying my brother who is, perhaps rightly so, really upset with me. My experience, what I know experientially, tells me there is a person who wants to kill me with a force sufficient for him to accomplish his means. And you and I, as we think about our struggles with God, the times that we wrestle with him, oftentimes, if we think about rightly what's going on, we recognize, okay, what's happening here is that there's God's word, and there's my experience, and they seem, and seem there is the operative word, a very important word for us to consider, God's word and what I'm experiencing seem to be at odds with one another, now, when we encounter that phenomenon, we shouldn't be surprised, right? We recognize from Scripture that that is going to happen. Paul in Galatians says, Galatians 6, 9, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Now, that's, that's a promise of God. That's God's word. Look, if you continue to persevere, you'll, you'll reap, you'll, you'll reap what, you, what you've sown there. Okay, that's what Scripture says, but boy, my experience seems different. And there's this temptation. Here's the path that I'm supposed to follow by faith. It doesn't seem like things are going very well as I follow that path. That path I need perhaps to do something different. That's a, it's a crisis of faith at that moment. Here's a second thing to think about. A test of faith often strikes when things are the darkest, right? Jacob had problems with Esau back at home. That seemed like a pretty dark moment, but things got worse encounters his uncle Laban, and Laban's worse than Esau. And now things have gotten worse because now there's Esau is more powerful, and he's coming to destroy him potentially. There's a this struggle. This is, the, this is the low point. And it's the low points in our lives, and I'm sure you could say this is true for you as well. It's when things seem the darkest at night, either literally or metaphorically, Symbolically, when, when things seem the worst, I wrote a sad statistic this last week. But suicide rates—they're kind of talking about when when people would commit suicide, what times of the day, and it's once once midnight hits that the number increases dramatically, and the, the kind of the height, the, the, the highest rate of suicides occur between the hours of two and three in the morning. Why is that? You know, that that's when things are the darkest. That's whenever it's, it's hardest to see reality. It's hardest to see things as they really are. Darkness covers things, again, both both literally and and symbolically. It's hard to assess things as they really are. Test of faith, am I going to continue to cling to God? It often strikes when things are the darkest, when it's hardest for us to really see God's hand in things. Thirdly, a uh, third, third thing to think here, the test of faith often feels as, though God is against us. That's another way we can recognize a test of faith is at that moment, boy, it feels like God himself is against me. And certainly here there's this this wrestling with, with God that is this the struggle. And you think, boy, this, this is so wrong for God to be against me. And yet, here's the amazing thing. As we see God wrestle with Jacob, we understand that God in his grace has willingly placed constraints upon himself as he wrestles with Jacob. It's not like God isn't sure whether or not he's stronger than Jacob. It's not like, you know what? I wonder if I could take Jacob in like an all-night wrestling match. Let's try this out. Oh, this guy's stronger than I thought. <laughs> that That's not what's happening here. God can, God can uh, cause every molecule within Jacob to not only, like, fall apart, but to have never existed in the first place. I mean, just with a a word, he can just cause Jacob to have never existed, or he can immediately create an entirely new universe in which Jacob never existed. It's not a problem for God. God, in his wrestling, is showing restraint here. And God's wrestling with Jacob is actually part of God's grace in Jacob's life to conform him to whom he needs to be by faith. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 recognizes this. He talks about the revelations that he received from God. and He says, God did something to me to keep me from being conceited because of the greatness of revelations. He gave me a thorn in the flesh. That's God's grace in my life, Paul recognizes, as he's, he's wrestling with me. As I'm wrestling with him, trying to understand, struggling for my, my faith to continue to walk in obedience. You can recognize, boy, this, it's this moment where it, f- it feels like God is against me. I'm, I'm trying to be obedient, and, and yet my life just keeps getting more and more difficult. And if, if God wanted to, he could take these things away, and yet he doesn't. Why, what's God's deal with me? What, what's his beef? The fourth way to recognize a test of faith is a test of faith often lasts longer than we think it should. You can even say it often lasts a lot Longer than we think it should. I uh, wrestled in high school for a couple weeks. It is really hard. You think I, I, thirty seconds is a long, long time? Wrestling. You wrestle with your kids. You wrestle with your parents. And it, you get tired quickly. Oh, catch your breath. This goes on all night. Now I don't know what moves they're making here. One of the, one of the ushers offered to come show me some moves on stage. I said no. I that would definitely not last all night that'd be like a 2 second deal but a test of faith mean it seems sometimes like it should be quick and okay okay god i got it test of faith passed. let's let's move on but but sometimes these tests of faith these wrestlings with god they go on a lot longer than we think they should and we okay um, here's this test and, and god we think there's kind of an implicit agreement with god that it's going to last this long and then once it once it goes past this point whoa whoa hey god neither of us agreed to this this is this is kind of inappropriate, God. I don't think this is right. There are times when our wrestlings with God, our struggles with sin or our struggles with some sort of situation, our struggles with doubt, it goes on longer than we think is appropriate. And yet exactly as long as God has ordained them. Okay. How do we respond? Number two, let's talk about responding to a test of faith. The man sees that he did not prevail against Jacob, and what, what that means is, with the self-imposed limitations that God had put on Himself, He knew exactly how strong He needed to be. God did, and His power here is limited by His own restraints. And He saw that Jacob, that Jacob, that Jacob continued to to be strong. In other words he recognized that Jacob was going to be exactly as strong as as he needed to be. And then, at that point, he demonstrates that he has an unlimited amount of power. He simply touches, in a moment, Jacob's hip, and Jacob's hip is is put out of joint as he wrestles with him. And now, I think the the test continues just, just a little bit longer here. It says... The man said, let me go for the day has broken. Now, at that moment, imagine the pain that Jacob is in. He's weary. He's tired. He has been unsuccessful in defeating this man that he is wrestling with. And I think now he recognizes the the power of this man. I think he begins to recognize the power of God here. And Jacob, as he wrestles with him, refuses still to let go. And look what he says in verse 26. I will not. I will not go unless you bless me. Now, as I read that, all sorts of theological alarms are going off in my head. Wait a minute. What do you mean telling God, no, I'm not going to let you go? Why is that? Is this inappropriate for Jacob to, to say this? No. This isn't sinful. Because Jacob, I believe, at this point recognizes his weakness before God and knows that the blessings that he has been striving to obtain his entire life through deceit, through dishonesty, through conniving, through manipulation, all these blessings that he has been striving to obtain, I think at this moment he recognizes that these blessings can come from no one other than this person. And he believes that recognizing his weakness, and this is the essence of the gospel, he recognizes his weakness, he recognizes the power of God, and he recognizes that only through God can he receive the promises. He believes that, and that faith manifests itself through perseverance, through work, and he clings to him. He is not saved, as none of us are saved, by works, but his faith in God and the blessings of the covenant that he will receive from God, his faith in God manifests itself in clinging to God. The fruit of faith is manifested here in this, this wrestling match, this wrestling match that I think is symbolic of all of Jacob's life as he has striven and, and tried to obtain the blessings of the covenant through all these inappropriate means. Now he tries to obtain the blessings of the covenant simply by asking for them from God, clinging to him, believing that God alone can provide them. And listen to how Jacob, or what, what God says in response as jacob in his excruciating pain continues to cling to god not letting go god says okay what what's your name you say what (laughs) seems like this could have come up earlier in the conversation seems like god already knows it did you understand the significance of of names in this culture I mean, everywhere we turn, people are naming things. You know, All throughout the book of June, I'm going to name, name this, I'm going to name this, I'm going to name this, and uh, you come to a place, uh, let's give it a name, and you have all these babies. I'm going to name this, uh, you know, this baby, I'm naming this because my sister's a jerk. Why, well, I'm going to name this baby this because you're a jerk, and they're all named all the time, constantly naming, and naming Naming things have, the names you give things have significance and Jacob's name has significance. Jacob understands that his name has significance. God understands that Jacob's name has significance, and he forces Jacob to acknowledge the significance of his name. What's your name? Who are you? The reply is simple. One word here in our text, Jacob. Jacob means supplanter, the one who tries to get things that aren't his. The one who strives to get that which he does not deserve through any means possible. Jacob is acknowledging that. And then listen to what God says in response. I'm giving you a new name. No longer are you going to be called Jacob the supplanter. But now you're going to be called Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And what does Israel mean? Israel means... May God strive, or may God strive for him. And so Jacob's entire life has been, has been consumed by trying to obtain the blessings through his own works. He wants to obtain the blessing through deceit, through dishonesty, through manipulation, through conniving. And now God says, okay, that's, that's over. May God strive. God is going to be the one who strives for you, and God is going to be the one who gives the blessing to you. It's only through God that you receive the blessings of the covenant, not through supplanting, not through trying to obtain them through wrong means. Jacob wants his name, and God says, why? And then blesses Jacob. And in that moment, God blesses Jacob with a blessing that only God can give. Clinging to God, by God's grace, through faith in God, recognizing the value of this person, the, the power of this person with whom he's clinging, Jacob receives, by, by doing that, by God's grace through faith, Jacob receives, through no works of his own, what he's been striving to receive his entire life. The blessing of God. Here's some, here's some things to think about. Number one, don't fall away, don't fall away, don't fall away. brother, sister in Christ, whose faith feels like it's wobbly, don't fall away begin to grasp the beauty of Jesus Christ. What what Jacob does here literally is what you and I are called to do spiritually. We're to cling to Jesus Christ, to see his value, to trust in him alone for our salvation. Number two, acknowledge who you are as you respond to a test of faith. Understand who you are in light of God. So as we think about God has called us to to believe in him and to walk this path of obedience and there are times where we say "I, I don't want to walk that path of obedience. And in those moments, I think we have to acknowledge some things about ourselves. A couple things to acknowledge about ourselves. One, we need to acknowledge that we are people of limited physical and emotional abilities. Jacob here recognizes, okay, my my physical ability is, is limited. I don't have the ability to, to conquer this person. You and I are going to find ourselves at moments where we're tempted to fall away from the faith. We recognize, hey, this is a test of faith. And one of the things that we need to do is, as we decide, I'm not going to fall away, we acknowledge before God, look, God, I am a person of limited emotional and physical ability. I do not have the physical capacity to do all that I need to do in order to, to persevere in my relationship with you. Emotionally, I do not feel like continuing to walk in faith. That should be true of all of us, to acknowledge that at some point in our lives, emotionally, We haven't felt like following God. In and of ourselves, we do not have the emotional capability of following after God. We acknowledge that. We also acknowledge our moral inability. We acknowledge morally, I don't have the ability to do this. Sometimes when I I counsel people or we're talking about their faith, I say, look, I know know God's word says I need to continue to do this. I, I can't do that. I cannot do that. And I say, that is exactly right. Your moral capacity is limited. And I'm being kind of nice when I say limited. Not only is my emotional, physical, not only are those abilities limited, not only is my moral ability limited, but also my intellectual ability is limited. And, and some of us have a, an easier, easier time recognizing that than others, right? Right? There's a, there are those moments where i I'm, I'm tempted to fall away i I'm, I know what God's word says, and yet as I, I think intellectually about the faith, I say, well i don 't know because of, of this evidence or that evidence, and I, I, you know i'm just not sure about what god's word says, and look, we have to be careful. We have to acknowledge before God God, my intellect is struggling right now, and yet my intellectual ability is is limited. I was thinking about this this last week we don't even our intellectual ability is so limited, we don't even know how to quantify how much we don't know. We have no ability to understand how much knowledge there is in the universe, and so we can't even quantify how much we don't know. Just think about the language that, that most of us speak, English. There are over a million words in the English language, and most of us know about 20 to 25,000, okay? Okay. Just in our, our own speech, our knowledge is limited. And in terms of human knowledge, our individual human knowledge is so limited. We are so finite. Own it. So come before God. Just acknowledge, hey, God, I am I'm not that smart, not that moral, not that strong. Acknowledge it. I want to fall away. That's where my heart is at times, Father. Acknowledge who you are, but then cling to who God is. Cling to who God is. Jacob knows this man is his superior. He knows he's limiting himself. It's this person, Jesus Christ, who allows us to grasp who God is. And God in his grace has shown us the beauty of Jesus. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known cling to the beauty of who Jesus is finally let's talk about transform being transformed by a test of faith transformed by a test of faith Jacob always naming things calls the name of the place Peniel saying I've seen God face to face that that means uh Peniel there means the face of God and he recognizes that he's seen God face to face and he says yet yet my my life has been delivered Sun rises, he's limping, it's a physical ailment that's going to plague him the rest of his life as a reminder of what's happened here. And then it talks about the transformative nature of this event in verse 32 because we see that this this moment in Jacob's life was so profound the people of Israel recognize it by not even the sinew of the thigh, recognizing the significance of what takes place here. Here here are the principles. Number one, rejoice that physical scars produce spiritual strength. Some of you have physical scars, physical, physical, and emotional physical scars because of tests of faith. You're different people today in May 2016 than you were May 2015 or, or some other year because of tough circumstances you've been brought through. You have scars today because of what you've been brought through. Rejoice. Rejoice because those have produced spiritual strength. There are things in other people's lives that we look at and say, boy, I can't believe they went through that. I can't believe they, they made it through that. Or if I was in that situation, I would never be able to, to do what so and so has done. Or if I think about God taking this away from me or taking this person away from me or doing that, I, I don't know if I would be able to be sustained. Here's, here's the good news. God gives us the grace When we need it. And our physical scars produce spiritual strength. And those physical scars are a reminder of God's sustaining grace as we cling to him in faith. Here's a second thing. As we talk about being transformed, we need to grow in understanding the relationship between God's grace and obedience. How is Jacob able to cling to God like that? I mean, do you say, well, Jacob was able to do it because he was so awesome and he was so powerful. No. Jacob has a faith. That allows him to that allows it to be manifested. I think here in this clinging, but even that faith is not something that's in and of Jacob and in and of himself. Jacob is got a guy with serious issues, as we know. And what I think happens here it's it's why I read the prayer earlier. I think God in this wrestling match is answering the prayer that Jacob prayed earlier. He, Deliver me, verse eleven. And what happens here is very interesting. Later in chapter 33, he's going to talk about coming face-to-face with Esau, and in the same way he came face-to-face with God. And what has happened is God has dealt with the situation with Esau by first dealing with Jacob's situation with himself. Remember we talked about the idea of propitiation. Jacob is trying to appease his brother. He's trying to, to turn away his brother's wrath from himself. And what happens is God in his grace provides for Jacob in the second member, that God the Son, he provides through God the Son the means to turn away God's own wrath over Jacob. And Jacob clings to him in faith. And as he clings to him in faith, he has the ability to be obedient. God's grace gives us the ability to have faith in him and walk in obedience. We walk in obedience, not by our own works. Clinging is not something we do in our own strength but by God graciously giving it to us. Then three, we hope that these things were transformed deep in our love for the Lord. Jacob sees the value here of God in a way he hadn't before. And then finally, it should deepen our love for others. As we encounter God, he turns his, way, his, his wrath from us as we receive the righteousness of God through faith in his son, Jesus, and it causes us to have a greater love for others. The only way, the only way that we obtain the blessings of the covenant is by clinging to God by grace through faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son Jesus, the life that we have in him, a life we we could not have in and of ourselves. And we would ask that you would be gracious to us today. Help us to cling to you. And no matter what circumstances we find ourselves, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.